The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm very excited um, today, because we have some really good things we're going to be talking about, two two big ones, actually. The first is, um, as part of this week's Schools In Application Workshop Series, we're going to be talking all about the FAFSA, filling it out. Uh, and this year, actually, there is an entirely new procedure um, because we are doing, we're, they're considering something called prior, prior year. Um, and as is well documented, I am not the financial aid or the college finance expert, so I'm going to uh, avoid getting into any more detail until Lori Peltier joins me a little bit later in the show. But first, um, one thing that we know our listeners are very interested in, um, and certainly uh, that a lot of students are very interested in, is um, medicine. And uh, we have a lot of students who are interested in pre-med. We've done a uh, some shows on, you know, things to get involved in. And today I want to share more about a public health major, which is something that I think not as many people are as familiar with. Um, They don't really know what it is. They don't know why it matters. They don't know how it might relate to a career in medicine. Uh, So I'm especially thrilled to welcome Catherine Etman, who is chief of staff at the Dean um, of the Dean at Boston University's School of Public Health to the show. And she's going to tell us a whole lot more about this option. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Beth. Hi. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. And um, I guess why don't we start at the beginning with um, what is a public health major? What's all? What's that all about? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show today. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about public health. So what is public health? Public health refers to the conditions that we live in that shape our health. So these are the social, political, legal conditions that shape how you and I live. So what is a public health major? That includes learning about the different sectors that contribute to shaping health. And public health can refer and include a number of disciplines, what make, which is what makes it such an interesting topic to study. So it can intersect with sociology, anthropology, politics, epidemiology, statistics, economics. So these are all different disciplines that a public health degree includes, and we typically see people who are interested in medicine or interested in health and also who would like to do something 
bigger, something more than um, work in a hospital or be a doctor. And a public health degree really exposes you to all of the different ways that we engage in the health sector. Right. So, I mean, I think this is, I love that you bring up all the different ways because for a lot of people, we talk to so many students and parents, and certainly we have a lot of families very interested in medicine, if they're, especially if the student is really good in math and science and they sort of think of becoming a doctor as the next logical step. Um, I know that I personally never considered a career in medicine. My mother was a nurse. She was a professor of nursing. But the big reason I never considered it, honestly, is the whole blood and guts thing of it. I just, it didn't appeal to me. And what's really cool about public health is it is a way to be involved. You might still be fascinated by it, but, you know, not really want to be in an operating room. Or like you said, you don't want to work in a hospital. Um, but you can be impacting health in a different way. And it could be through so many different avenues. And that's what's so kind of really exciting and interesting to me anyway um, about public health. And before the show, you and I were talking and you had a great metaphor to kind of help people understand a little bit more or visualize a little bit more what public health is all about. And I wondered if you might share that with our listeners. Certainly. So one metaphor that we use to explain public health is the picture of a river. So picture a river right now, Beth, and you see a person fall in the river and you want to get them out. So you jump in and you pull them out, right? Mm-hmm. Then a few minutes later, there's another person in the river. So then you jump in, you get them out, and then another person and another person. And what we see is, okay, we might say, who's throwing people into the river to begin with? And what <laughs> right. we like to say is, right? We're like, well, obviously I want to save every person, but if I can stop them from falling into this river to begin with, I'm going to do that. So we see medicine as a very important intervention. Doctors are saving lives on a daily basis. But public health is looking at those upstream factors to say, let me take a step back, let me go on the trail, and let me see why people are falling in. Is it because we don't have good road signs? Do we need a bridge? Do we need to communicate better? And Mm -hmm. these are the factors that we say are the political, social, legal factors that are contributing to the conditions that people live in. So if we can stop them from getting sick to begin with, and or from falling into that river, then we don't need to jump in and we can actually save as many people as possible. Got it. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense, right? You can either save people one at a time or try to make some bigger policies or plans so that you never even get to that point where people are jumping in the river to begin with. So I love that metaphor and thank you for sharing it. Um, I'm curious because one of the big questions always with something like this is, okay, so public health, maybe I'll investigate this a little bit further. What kind of courses might someone in a public health major expect to take when they're in college? So the courses can vary from very quantitative courses like statistics and epidemiology to more social science courses like anthropology, political science, government, or sociology. Got it. Okay. So a real, the other thing that's nice there is it isn't necessarily, another big thing that we get is the misconception that I want to be a doctor, I've got to major in bio, or I have to major in biochem, or I have to major in chemistry. And 
the fact is that to go on to medical school, you don't really have to major in any, you don't have to major in science. You could major in math. You could major in English. You could major in something like public health. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just gives me a nice opportunity to put in a plug there for the idea that, please, if you want to be pre-med, don't feel like you have to apply as a bio major because there's about 10,000 other kids going to be doing the same thing, and they're all going to be in the same applicant pool as you. So set yourself apart. Mm-hmm. But... Um, <laughs> That's a, I, I, I digress. Um, coming back to the topic okay. at hand, what kind of yeah. students, do you have some examples of students who um, might find a public health major interesting who maybe have never considered it before? Yes. I think this is one of the most interesting things about public health is that it attracts such a wide range of students. So I'll give you an example of someone I met with today, actually. So Boston University School of Public Health, we are a graduate degree program. And the student I met with was a journalism major as an undergrad. So this goes to show that the type of students who are attracted to public health could be interested in journalism, in writing, even in literature, um, or in the hard sciences. So we have biochemists. We have people who are interested in physics or pharmaceuticals, even in business. So we have a pharmaceutical track. So we have students who are interested in health. They're interested in making the world a better place. We have a really good group of people. We often say that this is this is the group of believers. They believe in social justice. We believe in making the world better and helping as many people as we can at any given time. So public health really appeals to a wide range of students. And as you mentioned before with pre-med, we do have a lot of overlap. So some students will go on to get their medical degrees and be doctors with a public health training, or sometimes people will be pre-med and instead find that they really are interested in those core drivers and go into public health. So there's a lot of crossover, and we can attract a range of students who are math and science-oriented, but also those who might be policy-oriented, government, if they're interested in health care, health insurance, or the business side. It's an incredible part of our GDP. If they're interested in pharmaceuticals or innovation or technology and health, that type of student might also be attracted to this particular field. Got it. And... Um you mentioned that um, the School of Public Health at BU is a graduate school. Um, are there undergraduate programs? Can undergraduate students at BU take advantage of programs at your school in particular? Or sh- sh- is this something that you see as more appropriate at the graduate level than the undergraduate level? So we're seeing that this is becoming more and more popular at the undergraduate level. And the BU School of Public Health has a four plus one program. So Boston University students can take courses and actually take an abbreviated graduate program. So they're able to get that master's in one year and start taking those courses as undergrads. And we're seeing this as a national trend. It is becoming much more popular, I think, across the U.S. So we would recommend public health for the undergrad level, I will say the degree is more of a base 
um, liberal arts degree where it gives you exposure to the different parts of public health. So that can be epidemiology, biostatistics, environmental health, global health, maternal health. And at the graduate level, that's really preparing you to be a professional in public health. And that's the professional degree that prepares you to go on. Got it. And what kinds of careers are you seeing people um, go into when they graduate from your program or from public health uh, major programs in general? So from our program, we see students go into three areas. They go into public health administration. So an example would be an alum who is the CEO of a hospital. Mm -hmm. We see people who go into public service. So one of our alumna is the commissioner of public health for Boston. Then we also see people in the private sector. So that's pharmaceuticals and companies, business, and anything having to do with the, the business of health. Got it. So even, for example, someone who might go on to law school after that and then go to work for a law firm that specializes in issues around health, public health, um, stuff like that. So those people. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Um, and I do. I love how broad it is and how what a great jumping off point it can be for so many interesting careers. Um, and, you know, again, I, that's my I'm always encouraging for some people, a very narrow major can make sense. But the type of major that where you can graduate and at 20, because often at 25, what you want to be doing could be very different than what you want to do at 35. And you're going to evolve as a person. Um, You're going to evolve in terms of what's important to you. You're going to evolve in terms of what's going on in your life. And what's nice is a degree that allows you to uh, adjust your career with those things in mind. Um, You know, I know I personally have had a few different careers in my life and I may yet have another in my Um, and, and so I just, I always am thankful for the fact that I majored in something that allows me to do lots of different things. And I, I see public health in a very similar way. Um, just in terms of, and so, but just in terms of, um, the kind of background that you might look for, for a high school student, for any type of an undergrad program, what kinds of things are, um, as far as you, you know, uh, admissions officers looking for specifically for public health? I think students who have a drive to make the world a better place, to make populations healthier, those are the students we are looking for. Um, obviously, if students have spikes in math and science and also in the social sciences, those are always positive and perhaps extracurricular activities that speak to their interest in the social services, the health sector, and just in general, public policy. Got it. What about things like calculus and statistics and bio and chem? Are those nice-to-haves but not necessarily uh, must-haves, or how do you look at those? Definitely. So the different tracks that you can take in public health really vary. So those are nice-to-have and, I think, necessary-to-have if you want to be an epidemiologist or a biostatistician and or you could learn those things in college. That's one of the great things about the major Um, But you could also take tracks that are more qualitative if you want to go into, for example, health law, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned. So a background in government or international relations, that might be 
along those lines as well. Got it. So a student who isn't necessarily a super science and math student, um, might this might be a really nice way to work in this field um, without necessarily having to spend all of their time in those subject areas or necessarily having to have excelled in those subject areas at this point. So um, Exactly. That's good for people. Still care about health and have an Mm -hmm. impact on health. Got it. Even if that isn't your particular area of interest or focus, um, as in the math and science. So um, last, we have time for one more question. And um, I was curious about, um, you know, a lot of times we talk to students and if they think about research, they think about research very narrowly. So they think about, oh, I can do medical research. uh, And that's generally about what they think about. So is this major fairly research intensive? And, And if so, What kinds of projects uh, do students get involved in? So the research depends on the school, but I can give you some examples that we have right here in Boston. Beth, are you in Massachusetts? I am. I'm actually doing this interview right now from Sharon Mass, (laughs) right outside of Boston. Excellent. So I'll give you two examples of research that our students have done. One of them is on the Boston Tea. So, you know, the, the T, it's the subway system. Yep, yep. So what we did was we looked at health outcomes for people who live at different T stops. So depending uh, on what T stop you get out, what is your likelihood of getting diabetes? And what we found was that if you get off at, say, Dudley Square, you have an 11%, this is 11% of adults have diabetes, whereas if you get off at Arlington, you have 3%. Wow. of adults with diabetes. So that's almost a fourfold difference. And so some people might say, well, maybe it's because they don't have access to hospitals. And then our students look and it turns out, no, Boston actually has one of the best hospital systems in the world, let alone the mm-hmm. country. And all of these T-stops are within an equal distance to a hospital. So it can't be that. So then we look and we say, all right, so it must have to do with these other drivers. Do people at these T-stops have the same access to education, income, food? And so we look at these different factors to help explain differences in health. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece of research. Another one that students have done locally is they were looking at pharmaceuticals and drug pricing. And they went from pharmaceutical store to store. So they went to CVS, Walmart, Target, and they were looking at the prices of pharmaceuticals across different stores to see how they were doing differences in pricing based on population. So these are very local examples. Our research spans across the world. You can do research on HIV in South Africa, maternal health. So it really depends on the type of research that the student wants to do, how quantitative they want to be, and I think it's really exciting that students who have a range of interest and quantitative background can really find a niche that they're passionate about, but that also will have an impact on the world. Catherine, I totally agree, and I thank you so much for joining us today. This has been super informative. Um, I now know way more and can speak even more intelligently with my students about this as an option, which is always nice. Um, And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Beth. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. All right, great. Um, We're going to take a quick break, uh, but don't go away because we'll be back with more about the FAFSA.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for joining us. Uh, As I promised before the break, we're going to be talking about everything you ever wanted to know about filing the FAFSA this year in 2016. Um, and here to tell us everything you ever wanted to know uh, is Lori, is my colleague, Lori Peltier, who is also a former financial aid officer at Becker and Anna Maria Colleges, um, and not incidentally, the parent of two children in college. So not only does she talk to people all day about um, these kinds of things, but she has also filled out the FAFSA herself more than once. Um, so Lori, welcome to the show. Hi, Beth. Happy to be here. Good. Well, all right. Why don't we jump right in? Um, and I think the first question that I know our listeners might be wondering, because in previous years, the FAFSA wasn't something you worried about until February, but why are we talking about it now? It's a little early. It's only September 29th. <laughs> it is early. And after, you know, 20, 25 years in the business, I'm having a hard time getting my mind wrapped around talking about it early, but it is what it is. Um, the FAFSA form has been moved up to open on October 1st. So in past years, it opened on January 1st. But the new FAFSA form for high school seniors who will be going to college next fall is available um, just next week, October 1st. Uh, So that's new. Uh, If you went to the website today, since it hasn't turned October yet, you'd see last year's form. 
Um, you don't have to do the form now. It doesn't mean that, you know, there's an urgency to do the form. It really depends on the deadline dates for the schools that you're looking at. The mm-hmm. earliest deadline dates that I've seen from colleges so far is November 15th. So although it opens October 1st and we're talking about it today, uh, you do have some time to complete it. Uh, check with your schools to see what their deadline dates are. And the earliest I've seen is, is November 15th. I think the other reason why we're talking about it is parents are always anxious about this. They really worry about it. So I'm glad that people are listening today to learn more about it, to kind of quell those fears and, and get the attitude that, yes, I can do this. It is something I can accomplish. Yes, that's the big one right there is this does not, you may have heard horror stories, but this does not have to be um, a big, scary thing. It is easier than filing your taxes um, and you're going to walk us through it. And I also just want to highlight the point that you just made, which is, yes, the form is available as of October 1st, but in general, you are unlikely to have to submit it anywhere on October 1st. You're going to have some time to get it completed before the schools that your child or that, you know, if you're working with a parent who's going to be filling this out before your parent has to file these forms, you have a little bit of time. Um, With that in mind, what are some steps that people should be taking now uh, to, in order to be ready to complete the FAFSA on time for the deadline? There are some steps that families can take now to make it easier. Uh, the FAFSA form, which stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid, um, I usually spell it out for people. It's F as in Frank, A as in Apple, F as in Frank, S as in Sam, A as in Apple. I say it a 100 times a day. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> um, it is an online form um, at the website fafsa.ed.gov, so it's a government form, and just so you make sure you're on the right website. Um, the first thing you can do to get ready for it, I think, is um, to get what's called an FSA ID, a Federal Student Aid ID or identification number. This identification number is required by both the student and one parent in order to sign the form electronically. It's an all-electronic form, so everything is either, you know, fill in the little uh, boxes with your number or fill in the little circle for yes or no, Uh, and at the end, you'll be signing it with your FSA ID. It can take uh, 24 hours to get an FSA ID, so that's something that a a family can be doing now, and you want to make sure that when you sign up for this FSA ID on their website that you keep track of it and write it down. Most of the problems and questions and and hurdles that families have is that they lost their ID number. They can't remember what their security code was or what their password was, so that can cause some issues. So just be careful when you're setting it up. Select a name and number and password that you'll remember, and you write it down because you will be using that FSA ID through the four years of college and beyond because it's how you're going to log in to check your loans after graduation. And let me just interject here. Um, I would recommend that families create a document of some kind where all of this information is collected in one place. You know, part of getting through this process successfully, um, both on the finance and the admission side, is being organized. And we see similar issues when students misplace their common app login or ID. They don't know what they created as their password, or they've signed up in a, in a portal for a college and they can't remember what they did there. And it just adds a whole layer of unnecessary 
angst and sometimes, you know, significant challenge. So put together a document and put everything in one place. It could be as simple as you get a notebook and you write it down. It could be as advanced as you create an Excel spreadsheet on your computer. Um, I think either option is not that difficult, but you need to be doing it right from the beginning. So just throw exactly. that out there. It's a public, sc- <laughs> public service announcement. Okay. Thank you, Beth. So, I could not agree more. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I have right. a Rolodex, an old-fashioned Rolodex on my desk that I still use, and I put my stuff on there. So. And you know what? Whatever works, right? Yep. So if that's yep. what works, then more power to you, then that's right. great. All right. So other steps. There's uh, two other things I'd recommend. One is um, start to get the school codes for the schools you're going to apply to. So every college in the country has a six-digit federal school code that identifies them in the FAFSA process. So if you know you're applying to five schools, go on to the FAFSA website and uh, look up the school code for those five colleges and write them down. You can do it in the form, but it saves a lot of time to have the numbers ahead of time. So when you get to that section of the form, you just put in the codes rather than spending time then looking them up. Lastly, I would recommend gathering all the important facts and figures that you're going to need for the form. Social security numbers for the parent and the student, dates of birth. You might need a bank statement if you don't know how much money you have in the bank. You might want to look at your most recent bank statement, have that in front of you. Your 2015 federal tax returns, uh, having them in front of you for both the student and the parent, if, if both of you filed, would be helpful. Um, that will make the process go faster so you're not stopping in the middle going, oh, well, what's the student's Social Security number? Oh, what, you right. know, what was my num- amount of money in the bank? So those things will be helpful. And the FAFSA form is the type of form you can save and come back to, but most people would like to get it over and done with. And I think it takes about an hour to two hours tops to fill it out, uh, and they have made some progress with making it faster and easier to fill out. So it it might be more on the one-hour side. Right. And if you have all that information in one place that you've suggested, that's going to make it much more likely you could get through it in an hour and be done. Um, So that's great advice. Okay. Other other steps that they should be thinking about right now? Um, That's about it that they can do ahead of time. Okay. Um, I guess the only other thing would be the deadline dates for the schools. Because the FAFSA form is the type of form that you fill out once and uh, it gets sent to all your schools at the same time, so you want to know of the, let's say, five schools you're applying to, which school has the earliest deadline date and what is that date. If it's November 15th, then that means you really want to get the FAFSA form done probably by November 1st, right. um, November 15th at the latest. If your you know, earliest date is, you know, I don't know, January 15th, then you have some time and maybe you don't have to do it now and you can wait and do it later. Got it. And, you know, one thing I do want to let people know is that it is not a problem if you are submitting the FAFSA to a college that your student hasn't actually applied to yet. Um, The information will stay there in a holding tank until the application comes in and then everything gets matched together. So I know people worry, well, you know, we have to get this one in by November 15th, but the rest aren't due to January 15th. Uh, so does my child have to get everything in by November 15th for every single school? And the answer to that question is no, they do not. Um, okay, so 
we talked about the things that parents can do uh, now to get ready to fill it out whenever that is that they're going to sit down and do it. When they're actually filling it out, is it just the parent's income that gets reported uh, on the FAFSA? It's both the parent's and the student's income and their assets. Okay. Um, and are the, they talking about income before or after taxes? Th- that's a good question. Um, and to add to that question, to, to develop it even further, I would say which parent, because in some situations you might have a divorced or separated situation and there might be step-parents involved and things like that. Um, so that can add to the confusion of which parents reports their income. It's also um, important to clarify this income question because the parent's income is the biggest driver in the student's eligibility for need-based aid. So the income is the biggest driver. It's not the only piece of financial data that's reported, but it is the biggest driver. So let me clarify, the custodial parent reports their income on the FAFSA form. And if the student lives with both parents, then both of their income is reported. If the parents are divorced or separated, then the parent they lived with the most for the previous 12 months will be the custodial parent. If the right. student spent equal time with both parents, like it was a 50-50 situation where they, you know, might spend exactly, you know, three and a half days with each parent each week, then the parent who provided the most financial support for the previous 12 months is the custodial par- parent in that situation. Okay. And then if the custodial parent is remarried and so there's a step-parent involved, that step-parent also has to report their income uh, even if they have not adopted the child. So that's a big source of contention, but it is a fact that so if mom and dad divorce, the child stays and lives with mom, but then mom remarries, mom and the stepdad need to report their information on the FAFSA form. Um, and that's because, legally required because, yeah. I, you know, I think that's an important point for people to understand with lots and lots of blended families. I myself have um, that situation in my, my own home. So the key is if, if your child is spending the most time with you, then both you and your new spouse have to be on um, that FAFSA form. Correct. And okay. it doesn't matter who claims the child on their tax return or what the divorce decree might have said years ago, it, that has nothing to do with who's the custodial parent on the FAFSA form. Okay, got it. Um, all right, so that's that piece. I think you had a couple more points that you wanted to make. I did. <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot of information here. Uh, the income that's reported on the FAFSA form this year comes from your 2015 federal tax return, and it can be accessed through this process that they call IRS data retrieval. So what happens is when a parent or and student are sitting down filling out the FAFSA form and they get to the section where it says parent's income and you figure out which parent is reporting and it says, did the parent file a 2015 tax return? And most of us are going to say, yes, it's, you know, it's, it's all in the past now. So 2015 was filed. When you say, yes, I did file a tax return for 2015, another question is going to pop up saying, do you want to do IRS data retrieval? The parent will say yes. What it will do, scary as this is, it will open up the IRS database for your tax return. So you'll have to put in a little bit more identifying information, name, address, social security number, and it will pull up the data from your 2015 federal tax return and populate your your, um, FAFSA form automatically. 
So you don't have to worry about which lines on your 2015 tax return to pull the numbers from or even trying to dig it out of the file cabinet for that matter because it's going to get it automatically from the IRS. What this allows is that the colleges then will know, because when they get the FAFSA information, it's going to say that it came directly from the IRS. So the colleges will know that this is valid data, that the, uh, it's from your IRS tax return. It wasn't a number you made up or, or guesstimated. In the past, when I worked in an aid office, we used to collect the tax returns. And if you can think now in the you know, identity theft <laughs> area that we yeah. are now, millions of tax returns from hundreds of parents, you know, flying around a financial aid office. This is a much easier, more accurate way to do it. So um, to just be aware that it's, you know, some people get a little worried when they're in the FAFSA form, all of a sudden it says, you know, you're going to go to this other website. It's perfectly fine. It's the system that they set up so the colleges will get your uh, actual information. Got it. Okay. So that's actually really a good thing then. Yes, yeah. And I just wanted to also say that the number that they're really looking for on your tax return is your adjusted gross income, which is the bottom line number on the first page of your 1040 tax return. Uh, so that is before tax income that they're looking at, unfortunately. Um, that's the number that, that has the biggest impact on your financial aid. But they'll also ask about untaxed income. For most families, untaxed income is either child support that they're receiving, again, because of a blended family, or pre-tax dollars that are taken out of your paycheck to go to your 401k or 403b retirement plan. So that was income you earned, but you didn't show it on your tax return because you didn't have to, but the colleges want to collect that amount, you know, too, so that they can add together your taxable income from your tax return and your untaxed income that you gave to retirement. In addition to the parents' income, the students' income for 2015 is also reported as well in the same process. A lot of students don't file tax returns, and that's, that's perfectly fine. If they didn't have to file a tax return, that's fine. But if they did earn money, they should be reporting that on um, a line that asked how much did the student earn in 2015. Got it. Okay. So this seems like a good time. Unless, Is there anything else you want to add about that? Because if not, we'll go to the break now. But if there's something more to add, let's do it now, and, and then we can break. No, it's a perfect time to break. Okay, awesome. All right, everybody. Well, we're going to go to a quick break. We're going to be back with more about the FAFSA, uh, and we won't be gone for very long. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. 
Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. And if you are just joining us, we are talking about completing the FAFSA and some things to be thinking about and to know about. Uh, and we're going to jump right back in. Uh, so, Lori, my next question for you is, um, which of my assets do I have to report? If I'm filling out the FAFSA, what assets are required for me to report? Well, there are two questions on the FAFSA form regarding assets for both the student and the parent. The first one asks, how much do you have today, as the day you fill out the form, in cash, savings, and checking accounts? So that's pretty easy. You know, what do you have in the bank in your checking and savings accounts or cash on hand? Mm-hmm. The second one asked, as of today, what is the value of your investments, which is, this is a little trickier. So the investments that you would include are stocks, bonds, mutual funds, 529 plans, and real estate other than the home you live in like a vacation home or a rental property. Mm-hmm. Um, notice that I didn't mention retirement plans like 401Ks, IRAs, or pension plans, or your primary residence, the home that you live in. Those are not included. On the FAFSA form, there is a list that explains what to include and what to exclude. So if you have any questions while you're filling out the form or you have some unique investments, I would suggest that you click on that little help button next to that question and it will detail out what types of accounts And on these investments or assets, you're reporting the net worth. So what is it worth after you subtract anything that's owed against it? So if you have a vacation home but it has a high mortgage against it, you you only report the equity that you have. Okay, got it. and how do schools, so I've, I've reported everything, I've filled out the FAFSA, how do the schools know that I've completed it? The schools will receive an electronic file of your FAFSA form. So once a, a student fills out the FAFSA form, and the student is the applicant on the FAFSA form. So in the beginning, when it starts to ask, what's your name and address, even though mom or dad might be filling it out, they're actually referring to the student. The student is the applicant. The student will receive an email because the FAFSA form will ask you what email address do you want to be contacted at. So you want to make sure you put down an email address that uh, is valid that somebody's looking at. Uh, once it's submitted, they'll get an email that it's been submitted, they received it, and then about two days later, they'll get an email that it's been processed. And this email will also include what's called a student aid report, which will detail out everything that the student submitted on the form. When you get that email, you know that all the colleges that you listed on the FAFSA form have also received your file electronically. So there's no need to mail anything to the college or call the college and see if they received it. Uh, Once you get that email that it's been processed, you know that the schools on your list have also received it. Um, You can list up to 10 schools on the form. So, you know, you could submit it to 10 forms all at once in in one submission. Got it. One fell swoop. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what are so those are that's some really great nuts and bolts of how to do it, what to list, all of that. Um, I'm guessing if the FAFSA is anything like applications, um, we see some common mistakes. What are some common mistakes that families tend to make on the FAFSA? Um, I think one of them is is missing deadline dates, not paying oh, yeah. attention to what the schools require when they want it, um, so that they might miss deadline dates. Especially, I think the families who are afraid to fill it out and nervous about it tend to yep. kind of have their head in the sand and and, and miss some deadline dates. Um, the other one is including their retirement savings in their assets. You know, when people think about their investments, they often think of all their accounts and not realizing that that account is under a retirement heading. So, you know, make sure that you exclude your 401k savings and IRAs. I think the other mistake I see sometimes is double counting their assets. So you might have, say, a CD or a certificate of deposit that you think of it as your savings account, but it's also listed under your investments. So if you put it under both, cash checking and savings, and then also under your investments, you've double counted that, that asset, yeah, which is not a good thing. No. Um, <laughs> and then the lastly, what I see is they're not including their untaxed income of their 401k contributions. So a family might submit you know, their income, but they're forgetting about that untaxed income, the pre-tax dollars that are coming out of their, ta- out of their paycheck on a, on a regular basis. And when the school figures it out and adds it back, it can really change their financial situation depending on how much they're contributing on an annual basis. So that can make a difference. So to clarify there, the, um, the annual contributions to your retirement savings of pre-tax dollars does get counted, but the total overall value of your retirement savings as an asset does not get counted. Got it. So, in other words, if you're putting away $16,000 a year towards your retirement, they're going to count that. But if you have $400,000 in a 401k account, they are not going to count that. Exactly. Perfect way to say it. All right. Awesome. Um, Okay, so what about you go ahead, you fill out the FAFSA, you're ahead of the game, we've helped you be less afraid of it, and then um, your financial situation changes after you've already submitted it. What do you do then? Well, I would appeal to the schools. Even if you're still looking at several schools, I would write a letter of appeal to the financial aid office at each of the individual colleges and explain to them what changed, whether you lost overtime or you're no longer getting bonuses or you're now part-time instead of full-time or you lost your job altogether um, or if there's any health issues in the family that are affecting your income. That's something the FAFSA form is not good about, you know, attaching a document or telling your story. It's just you know, fill in the bubbles. So mm-hmm. you, it's something you would have to write in a letter, and I would encourage you to do so. The school won't know about your financial circumstances unless you tell them. Right. I think that's a really important point. We make it a lot. We talk about it a lot. Um, this is still a people process, and forms will never tell the whole story if there are complications. So you want to get in touch with the schools. Um, so we talked about the fact that you submit the FAFSA and it goes to all the schools on a student's list. They can list up to 10 schools. What if by the time that the FAFSA is being submitted, the student was only sure about five schools and then they want to add a couple more after the fact? Um, how how can, you, can you add a school later and how do you do that? You can add a school later. You can also make corrections to the form. So, you know, if you realize you 
typed in your address wrong or, um, you know, there was other demographic information that was wrong. You can make changes to the FAFSA form using your FSA ID and going back in online to open it up again and make a change. You can add a school that way. The other um, thing that students need to do is if they're applying to more than 10 schools, my daughter applied to 11, just to be difficult. So we, <laughs> we listed the first 10, submitted them, uh, let it be processed, and then as soon as it was processed, I had to go back in, remove one school to make room for her 11th school. And then Got it. So the schools will receive updated FAFSA forms along the way. Um, so they'll get, you know, and they are numbered like, Series 1, Series 2, Series 3. So they will know which version of your FAFSA form that they're looking at for any corrections, schools or other data as well. And if you do remove that school, again, I know this is a source of panic for a lot of people. You are not removing your child from consideration for financial aid at that school. You are simply acknowledging, okay, they've already gotten their information. I'm adding a new school in here. Um, so you're not wiping away something you've already sent. You're just adding. So I know, that, um, I know that kind of thing makes people very nervous. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the last question I have for you today is, and it's, it's potentially a big one, but um, the FAFSA is great. We talked through how you fill it out. Is it the only financial aid form I'm going to need to complete as a parent this year? It is possible that the FAFSA form is the only form you might need to complete, but it's going to vary student by student based on the schools that they're applying to. So again, just like in the admissions process, the the application requirements for financial aid can vary school to school. Um, There are about 300 colleges in the U.S. that do require a second financial aid form called the CSS Profile Form. There'll be a segment on this show, I believe, on the 13th of October, where Mm -hmm. I'll be back again talking about how to fill out the CSS Profile Form. It's usually the more expensive, more selective um, private colleges that will ask for that form. And then there are a few, a handful of colleges that will use their own financial aid form. Because the FAFSA form has been so simplified over the years, it's asking fewer and fewer questions every year. So a lot of colleges want to gather just a few more pieces of information before deciding who gets their money. So they may have their own financial aid application. Again, you've got to check what they require and what their deadline dates are. Got it. Okay, so very good information, and tune in again on October 13th. Um, So every week we do our Schools in Application Workshop series, and we try to give homework. Um, I have a couple of pieces of homework. My first piece of homework is to get organized. So create that spreadsheet or buy a notebook or do whatever you have to do to have one place where you're putting all of your logins, passwords, IDs, all of that stuff so you can keep track of it. I think another piece of homework that I might give, and you can help me with this one, Lori, is um, now this weekend, tonight, tomorrow is a great time to gather all of the things you're going to need together, all of the documents you'll need to complete the FAFSA. Can you give us the quick list again of what you're going to want to gather together before you sit down? Sure. Um, First, they need to get an FSA ID. Uh, from the federal government, um, you can go to the FAFSA website and there will be a link to obtaining an FSA ID for both the student and the parent. If the parent happens to have older children that they already applied for, uh, they can reuse their FSA ID from previous years, but each student needs their own individual ID. Uh, second, I would get uh, the six-digit federal school code for each of the schools that they're applying to. 
so that mm-hmm. they know um, what codes to put in when they get to that. And lastly, um, start to gather the information like Social Security numbers, date of birth, bank statements, and 2015 tax returns. And the other important thing that I didn't mention earlier would be your 2015 W-2s because that's the one that's going to show the untaxed income going to your 401k. Got it. Perfect. Thank you so much. The other big piece of homework that I have for people is um, next week, actually, we're going to be spending the bulk of the show talking about the Common App and completing the Common App. So today we're FAFSA and financial aid. Um, and next week we're all about applications. Um, and my colleague, Elise Krantz, has been doing a wonderful blog series, as she does every year, about things to be looking out for, how to fill out specific sections. And she's going to be um, with me next week, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But my homework for those of you listening and who are going to be applying in the fall is to sit down and um, fill out the Common App. Um, Because if you fill out the Common App, then you might notice that, oh, I'm not quite sure what to do in this section, or I have a question about this. Um, So fill it out. Send us your questions. Um, But also, if you filled it out, then when she offers you a tip, you can, real, you can say, oh, right, I had a question about that, and she will ideally be answering it for you. So if you haven't done it already, you're going to want to fill that out. Um, I uh, actually was not supposed to be here this week, but I'm thrilled that I was because I, as always, learned lots more than I knew before I started this, this show today. And, Lori, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, so next week, again, I'm back. We're talking about Common App, I just mentioned. Um, also, for our listeners, visit our archives and our blog. There is so much good stuff on there. There is so much good stuff through the Voice America website. Um, you can also go to iTunes, and if you look up Getting In, A College Coach Conversation, all of our podcasts are there. You can download them for free. You can actually sign up to get uh, regular downloads. So every time there's a new show, it will automatically download for you. Uh, we would love it if you would rate the show while you're there. Um, we're always looking to spread the word uh, about what we have to offer. If you have FAFSA questions, if you have admissions questions, post them on our Facebook page or send them to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We'll try to answer them on an upcoming show. Uh, and really, um, yeah, we hope you'll join us next week. And we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.